Sakiko Miyazaki didn't dream of going to Harvard before she applied. She didn't have perfect grades or test scores, but she applied anyways because she thought, why not? She wasn't one of those kids who structures their whole high school experience around getting into Harvard. She played tennis, read a lot of books, and did other average high school stuff, all because she wanted to, not because she thought it'd look good on her application. So she wasn't expecting much when Harvard sent out its decisions. But she got in, and when she saw that on the applicant portal, she just couldn't believe it. I, to be completely honest with you, I did not believe it. So I kept refreshing the page to make sure that um, it stayed that way, and it did. So I, I, I was kind of speechless, and I walked into the living room where the rest of my family were, and I was like, I, I got into Harvard, and they just like I think there was like a split second of silence when everyone just like kind of processed it, and then yeah, my whole family they just screamed. Now, the world of Harvard, the opportunities, the network, the name recognition, it was within reach. It was March, and she was at home in a residential neighborhood of Tokyo. Her high school had been online for over a month already, and she was already experiencing the effect of COVID on daily life. So there wasn't much for Sakiko to do while this was all happening. She was mostly at home, observing social distancing guidelines, and getting psyched to go to Harvard. The pandemic had closed out her last year of high school in a chaotic mess, and she was excited to get back to some semblance of normal. At the same time, the conversation around school reopenings in the U.S. was starting to heat up. We want to reopen the schools. Everybody wants it. The moms are doing certain things. And you leave it to the local authorities to figure out what that is. In July, Harvard announced it would be welcoming only freshmen to campus while holding all classes online. So I found that out because of the time difference. It was like at midnight for me. And I found and I was like, oh, so I'm a freshman, so I can go like but like, this is amazing, I can go to campus. But then she woke up to more upsetting news. ICE and the Department of Homeland Security announced a new set of visa restrictions that would bar international students from studying on campus. Well, so I woke up and that was the first news I saw. So that's that wasn't a great start of the day. She had gone to bed with clarity, but woke up to an uncertain future. Everything was up in the air again. Basically threw everything out of the window because the consulates didn't know what was going on, the embassies didn't know what was going on. We were all trying to find out what was going on. Then, Harvard and MIT sued the government over the new visa rules, and they were reversed by the next week. I think I was relieved, because I was like, oh, like they're like fighting for us, they like really valued international students, and I was really thankful. But there is a catch. International freshmen would still not be able to study in the U.S. Basically, the initial DHS rule was overturned, but there were still restrictions on who would be issued new visas. At the end of this crazy roller coaster, Sakiko would not be able to study in the US. A while after that, Harvard sent all of us an email that basically said, we're try- still trying to fight against this, but because of the timing and the logistics, it, we can't like, have international freshmen be on campus. Now, Sakiko is stuck at home, forced to start college from the opposite side of the globe while her classmates are on campus. And she naturally feels like she's missing out. I think I felt that the most like towards the beginning when I started to get to know like students who are living on campus. And I was like, oh, that's cool. And then we'll, I don't know, like follow each other on Instagram or something. And then you start to see those like posts and stories of people like being on campus with their friends. I think the most painful irony of Sakiko's situation is that she's actually spent a substantial part of her life in the U.S. 
For eight years of her childhood, Sakiko lived in Maryland while her dad worked in D.C. If you went back to that time in her life and asked where she's from, she would have said Bethesda, Maryland. She would have told you she felt more American than Japanese, and she would have told you she felt welcomed in the States. She didn't feel out of place despite looking and sounding different. But to Sakiko, the America she knew when she was 14, living in Bethesda, that's worlds away from the America she sees and experiences now. I talked to a handful of international students for this episode, and a lot of our conversations, like the one I had with Sakiko, were underlined by a common theme, distance. And while we're all feeling distance in the pandemic right now, it's especially pronounced for international students. For some internationals, there's the physical distance between home and college. For others, there's distance in culture, there's distance in time zones, distance created by visa restrictions. And when these policy issues come up, like when the DHS announced its ban on international students, it reinforces this arbitrary distinction between what being American is and isn't. And that distinction has huge consequences for international students. More on that on this episode of New Normal. The most obvious form of distance international students deal with is physical distance. I talked with students from India, Greece, Syria, all over, and some of them haven't been home since starting college. Now, if you're taking virtual classes from anywhere that's not Cambridge, then you likely have to adapt to a difference in time zones. For Sikiko, that's a 13-hour time difference. She had two options when it came to planning her semester. She could flip her daily routine, becoming nocturnal for the purpose of staying in Eastern time, or she could enroll in classes that would meet at reasonable times for her in Tokyo. She chose the latter, and as a result, her class options were pretty limited. I actually, I wanted to take a freshman seminar this semester because there were so many interesting ones, and like I wrote those applications for it, submitted it like two weeks before it was due, because I was like, you know what, I'm going to be responsible and productive. But then the meeting times came out on my Harvard. And I realized that every single one I applied to met like past midnight for me. Beverly Fu, class of 2024, did the opposite. She's in Singapore, which is a 12-hour time difference, and she's flipped her sleep schedule to adapt. Now I'm I'm pretty much on Eastern time. So I woke up at like 6 p.m. Her first meal of the day is dinner with her family. And then I will kind of have lessons from like on a usual Monday or usual Tuesday. I'll have lessons from 10.30 to 11.45 and then 12 to 115, 1.30 to 2.45, and then in the morning, I have another class from like 7 to 8.30. Her parents and three siblings are all asleep when she's attending her classes, and when they wake up for breakfast, Beverly is getting ready for bed. Although life in Singapore is slowly returning to normal, Beverly can't really take part in it. So because of the current situation, her being an international student and Harvard being online, that distance we talked about earlier is really prevalent. To be as close as she can to Harvard, she's now distanced from her family and local community. Even in a normal year, the cultural distance you might face as an international student can be daunting. It's hard to move to a different country, especially if English isn't your first language or you're not familiar with the social norms. I heard again and again that the Harvard community is, for the most part, a welcoming space. The Harvard International Office has an array of resources and programming, and the students I talked with generally felt supported by the school. But there's only so much that the community within the university can do to make international students feel welcome. Sakiko, 
the freshman we heard from at the top of the episode, lived in the U.S. from the time she was 6 to 14 years old. And like I mentioned, in that time, she felt at home here. I guess when I was there and when I was living there, especially towards the end, I felt more American than Japanese. And I'm native Japanese. Like, my passport is Japanese. So, like, yeah, so it really felt like, like, like I'm home here. Like, this is where I am. She went to public schools and learned how to speak English through Harry Potter audiobooks narrated by British voice actors. And yes, that's why you're hearing a hint of British accent. She moved to Japan in 2016. She kept up with her friends in the U.S., but her perception of the country started to change. I just kind of like the last four years, I was like, there was like kind of like a sense of detachment almost because I was like, wow, it's like, it really isn't like what I experienced. Part of that was this. I've just received a call from Secretary Clinton. She congratulated us, it's about us, on our victory. So now, this place she once thought of as home seemed to be changing. America now was not the America she knew. The government was openly hostile to immigrants, and she started to feel distance from her old American identity. But looking back on her experience in Maryland, Sakika realizes that her rosy perception of the U.S. was somewhat colored by her childhood innocence. There were still those times when kids at school would make insensitive comments about her Japanese lunches or ask something stupid about China, the classic things East Asians growing up in America face. I think in second grade, we were learning about World War II, and that, I mean, that has so many implications, but then at the same time was, I and one of my closest friends actually at my elementary school, um, she was German. So in my class, like, we kind of got this like hostility almost from like and remember this is second graders and yeah i think one person even said like oh like well you lost and i was like well yes japan lost in the war like good on you for knowing your history but like that has nothing to do with who i am like and i think that was like one of the first times i was like wow like there's still something about being like a foreigner like an outsider like not the same That happened well before the pandemic, before COVID made its way to the U.S., before Trump's inflammatory comments about the virus, before the recent rise of anti-Asian sentiment in the U.S. Why do you keep calling this the Chinese virus? There are reports of dozens of incidents of bias against Chinese Americans in this country. Your own aide, Secretary Azar, says he does not use this term. He says ethnicity does not cause the virus. Why do you keep using this? A lot of people say it's racist. It's not racist at all, no, not at all. It comes from China. That's why. It comes from China. This language associates Asians with disease and sickness, and it's a racist trope that can be traced back hundreds of years. Speaking from my own experience, it doesn't matter which country in Asia you or your parents are from, it's all seen as the same. Since the pandemic started, there have been a number of stories about Asian Americans being physically and verbally assaulted. An FBI report in March even warned of this increase in hate crimes. Before Sakiko found out she'd be studying at home, her parents sat her down for a talk. My parents suddenly sat me down and they were like, we're very excited for you and like we hope you have the most amazing time even if it's compromised because of COVID. But they actually said, um, be careful and don't like be like don't go out with a group of other Asian or Asian American students like alone. Because you, like, people might 
people see that group and just think that you guys are Asians, and that's all. That's all that's going to matter to them. And then, like, like they they might be hostile to you, or like worse, like actually attack you. It all comes back to this idea of distance. In some cases, it's distance over physical space. Tokyo is a 14-hour flight from Cambridge, and depending on where you're listening to this podcast, you could be even further. That's distance you can measure in miles. But there's also distance we create between ourselves as humans. There's the distance between what it means to belong and what it means to be foreign. And we can't quite measure that in miles. From the Harvard Crimson, New Normal is a podcast about students in the pandemic. It's produced and edited by me, Kai McNamee. This episode had some help from Jason Lamb.